Hey, unsupervised learning listeners, normally I don't record anything that is super time sensitive, but uh, this is a podcast I recorded with Richard Hanania about uh, the events around January 6th and what's going on in the United States right now, the potential for civil war. Uh, so, you know, I recorded it and I'm posting it as soon as possible. So if it feels a little different than the other things that you have listened to, uh, that's the reason. It's a really different uh, just orientation to what I'm trying to do here, but I think it's important. So I hope you enjoy this. This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. Hey, everybody. It's Razib. I am here with my friend, Dr. Richard Hanania. Uh, can you introduce yourself, Richard? Uh, yeah, sure. I am uh, the president of founder of the Center for Study of Partisanship and Ideology. We, under, uh, we uh, research social psychology, political science, underexplored topics in the social sciences. Um, I'm also a research fellow at Defense Priorities, where I write about American foreign policy. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's about it now. So, you know, Richard, I've talked to you um, before, uh, you know, we know each other online and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I've talked to you about foreign policy, those sorts of things, the election. Um, and now I want to talk to you about what's going on in the United States right now as we speak in uh, middle of January after January 6th, which I think is a date for most of the listeners in the United States that I don't need to elaborate. But there was some violence that happened on the Capitol, our legislative building uh, for the federal government. On January 6th, a crowd uh, of pro-Trump people. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, there's a lot going on. You know, Lynn Cheney just came out saying that she's going to, you know, vote to impeach. She's number three among the Republicans. So a lot of a lot of shift is happening. Um, you wrote an article in The Washington Post. Uh I don't know. How many months ago was that article? Was that op-ed in the Washington Post? I, I remember because it was the Sunday before the election. So it was something like October 31st, November 1st, something like that. So it was um, basically throwing cold water on the idea that there could be a civil war, some serious conflict in the United States, which is which is a, you know, it's it's a model. It's a theory that people were like putting out there a couple of months ago. Um, so now we have, you know, violence. Police officer died. Uh, someone was shot. On a, in a federal building, um, Facebook, Twitter kicked Donald Trump off their platforms. There's rumors of violence everywhere, um, you know, in all the capitals and marches. Um, has this updated your model in any way? And then also, can you just tell us really quickly? And you, you did a blogging heads TV with uh, Bob Wright, and so I'll put the links in there for the show notes. But um, you know, where you outlined your theory and told Bob why you do not believe um, a civil war will happen in this country. So can you talk about that and any updates since then? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, um, I, I, you know, I can't take credit for uh, what I've been summarizing from the civil war literature and the blogging heads TV and in the Washington Post article. <clears throat> but basically the idea is, and it's, you know, it's an idea that I'm just taking and sort of applying to modern America, is that the model of civil war that most people are working off of is a grievance based model. If Americans hate each other and they do hate each other more than ever, we have a lot of data on that and a lot of sort of anecdotal, anecdotal data uh, supporting that. So that, that, that part is true. Um, um, 
the idea is that we're getting closer to civil war. We're getting closer to conflict. Now, if you look at actually the civil war literature, what predicts civil war is basically having a poor country, having some kind of political destabilization, like, uh, uh, you know, like a, like decolonization or, or something like that. Some, just some external shock, um, are all, are also, you know, uh, uh, geography that poor states can't reach. It just generally does not happen in rich countries. In fact, it's never happened in a, in a country anywhere close to the United States, anywhere close to as wealthy as the United States. Does that mean it can't happen? No, but I mean, all we really have to go on is the past and technology changes and society changes in response to technology and economics. So uh, you never know. But if you're just going past uh, with the past as a guide, I would say civil war is highly unlikely. Now, um, looking at uh, the circumstances of the United States today and wealthy countries today and sort of which way has technologically pushed, has it made civil war more likely or less likely or other kinds of mass violence? Um, you know, my, my intuition is to say probably less likely because you have these, uh, you have the internet, you have these channels of communication, you have these ep epistemological bubbles and everyone has their own news channel and website and social media. So maybe you say, okay, there's more, there's more division at the same time, uh, the police, the FBI, uh, the NSA, they have these things too. And if you think it's lack of state power that causes civil war, then the state has really never been better positioned to, uh, uh, to head off threats to it. Um, so uh, whether it's been whether my model has been updated, I'd, I'd say no. I mean, I never said that bad things wouldn't happen in the United States. I mean, I think that bad things can happen. Um, th this was I would not downplay what happened on uh, la last Wednesday. Uh, they breached the Capitol. They, they, these uh, five people died. Three Trump supporters died of their own health problems. One of them was shot by a Capitol Hill police officer and one Capitol Hill police officer was beaten to death. It's obviously terrible. There's videos of these people going around chanting, where's Mike Pence? Uh, where's Nancy? You know, I, 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 I don't think they were uh, looking for them to have a nice conversation with them. So it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty big deal and a pretty, you know, awful, awful thing. Um, but, but civil war is something else. So civil war, a civil war is something where, uh, depending on the definition used, usually it's generally a thousand people die a year in armed conflict. And I don't see that happening. I mean, the worst case scenario, I've updated my priors a little bit, I'd say on, uh, like political instability, whether we can have, we can't just have a. We can just have a coup. I mean, we could have a coup. A coup is not a civil war, and I think if we did have a coup, it wouldn't um, end in civil war because one side would just have the government, and that would be it. Um, so it's updated my priors on that a little bit. Um, people say that you know, if, a, if there was a smarter Trump, maybe he could have pulled this off. Um, I think that's. I think that's probably true, but you, I don't think you can bank on a smarter Trump ever coming along. I think he was sort of a um, a unique character. The sort of uh, connection he had with the republic he still has with the republican base the sort of way he's mind melded with them and then combined with his personal traits of just you know not caring about morality in in any way um that's that's a unique individual and like you you know you could say well take that individual but make him a little smarter and maybe things work out differently well you know you you never know if you're going to get that that could be that could be like a unicorn um so yeah i think our institution is a little more fragile than i thought do i think that we're going to start uh we're going to see uh, people killing each other in large numbers in the next few years. No, I, I still don't believe that. All right. So, um, so civil war for political scientists, you are a political scientist has a technical definition of a thousand people being killed in conflict within the country due to yeah. internal conflict. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes there's, you know, there's people will use different definitions, but generally that's, that's the most, uh, you know, that's the most commonly used definition. All right. And so, um, 
you know, I guess then by that definition, we've only had the civil war in the 1860s then because there were conflicts and, you know, instability. But I mean, a thousand seems a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you, you have to have a cutoff. You have to have a cutoff somewhere, right? I mean, it can't be, you know, yeah. you know, if you if you consider every time there's a mass shooting civil the civil war, then we've had we've had multiple civil wars every year for the last decade. You know, they can't be right, too. So, you know, it's easy to say, you know. Uh, bad, th- you know, I predict bad things are going to happen, and then bad things happen, and you're right. But it, you know, you have to sort of discuss each of these things differently, right? Is, is the civil war likely? Well, there's certain causes of that. Is is a coup likely or not? Well, there's different, you know, ca- causes of that. So you have to you have to think about sort of these things individually. Uh, bad things will happen is is not a prediction. I you know I predict bad things will happen in the next few years too. It's just you know we have to be specific about what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, one thing that um, I am noting is, you know, we're talking about civil war and coup, and, um, you know, I want to ask you about what you mean by coup, but it looks like a lot of the um, elite right is turning on Trump rather quickly. I mean, they were not, um, they were not totally bought in ever anyways. It was obviously uh, partly just self-interest, but, um, you know, if you look at the front of National Review, it is not feeling very Trump-friendly right now, Um, you know. People like Madison Cawthorn are now turning um, on their previous, you know, flirtation with violence. Lynn Cheney, as I mentioned at the beginning, comes out in favor of impeachment. McConnell, who was never a big Trump fan, is uh, sending signals that he's happy with, you know, an impeachment. Um, I just saw a headline right now, uh, Meghan McCain said some really negative things about <laughs> the people who rushed. Did you see that? Uh, not not specifically Megan McCain. Okay. I've seen that other stuff. Well, I mean, she's married to um, Ben um, Dominic, right. who owns or not own. He runs. He founded the Federalist, so which is probably the closest to uh, mainstream conservative media that's pro MAGA. I mean, not talk radio, not American greatness or whatever. So I think that that's a signal. So. Biden is president-elect. He's going to be president anyway. Would it be a coup if, I mean, like, how do you define a coup? Would it be a coup if they impeach Trump and, you know, he can never run again? I mean, I I don't really know, like, how we classify that. Well, no, I mean, I think a coup would be, uh, you know, he you impeach him. I mean, that's all le- that's all legal procedure. Uh, running, you know, having uh, invading the Capitol and sort of physically intimidating them to not certify Biden's vote, I, I think, is is something uh, closer to coup. I, I I don't I don't put much stock in uh, sort of the Republicans turning on Trump. I mean, I'll I'll tell you the uh, I would I, I would still be shocked if they voted uh, to impeach him even after he's gone. The thing is the the. You know, it seems like a lot. Liz Cheney is number three in the House among Republicans. Um, and then Madison Cawthorn didn't actually say he'll impeach him, but he said uh, he said that he regretted uh, going along with the stop the steal stuff. And the other there's Adam Kinzinger and one other congressman. And these these aren't surprising. Um, these aren't people who were uh, who were um, uh, sort of a, a hardcore Trumpist before. We haven't really seen uh, we haven't really seen that break yet. And I think you have to understand American politics in the context of everything is about polarization. So if you look at the last ten years, every highly salient. Um, 
pretty much, I think without exception, any highly salient thing that Congress is voting on has almost always, has always, as far as I can remember, broken down along party lines with maybe, you know, a handful switch between parties. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about Obamacare, um, which Obama worked really hard to get some Republicans on board. They they stayed firm. No Republicans went on board. Uh, I'm talking about the, the attempt to repeal Obamacare, which a few Republicans uh, went with the Democrats on, but it was still, it was still, I think, Collins and uh, it was like Collins and McCain or something. I'm talking about Supreme Court votes. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the Trump tax cut, then impeachment and the first impeachment itself. So each one of these was almost a perfect party line vote. Why? I mean, there's structural, there's structural things going on here. Um, the Republicans in particular live in fear of talk radio and they live in fear of being primaried. Um, and I would, I would, um, maybe by the idea that they would force him out a little more seriously. If you just watch Sean Hannity tonight and you watch Tucker tonight and Lauren and Grimm tonight, I would, I would look what Fox news is doing more than what sort of people on Twitter are doing. Um, I think that's what they live in fear of talk radio and, uh, and sort of Fox news. So I, yeah, I think there's, there's a, there's a little bit of a break for Trump. The, 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 uh, so we have at least three Republicans who are going to vote for the impeachment in the house. It was zero, uh, on the Ukraine impe- impeachment, maybe it'll go up a little higher. I'd be very surprised. I'd be very surprised if it went up much higher than that. They, they're over him. I mean, they 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 have an excuse now, in the sense that he'll be gone in a week, so they can just say, you know, this is this this is divisive. The country needs to move on, and they have to vote. And I, I think they'll probably, um, you know, they're, 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 there's there's just it, it's just a. Uh, I mean, they hate the guy. <laughs> they're really sick of Trump and what he's done to the party. But it's, but it's they're still scared to death of their base and they're still scared to death of being primaried. And if it's like a 50-50 issue within the Republican Party, but the activist base like really loves Trump, I don't think they're going to do it. So you think, um, I mean, let's get a number from you. Like, So in the House, it's going to be mostly party line. There'll be a few people that break. But uh, once it gets to the Senate, um, like how many how many people will vote to convict? I mean, all the Democrats, and then yeah, and then Romney, uh, maybe Col- uh, maybe Collins and Murkowski, and then uh, uh, Sass, and that would get you to fifty-four. You need sixty-seven, and I think there's a big drop-off in probabilities after after those after those four. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any anybody else who's a usual suspect. You still got a long way to go to get the to get to sixty-seven. Um, yeah, and I, I doubt you get there. Yeah, yeah, that that seems, that seems that seems that seems a reasonable assessment. Um, so, no civil war. Um, what's your what's your let's say um, let's give let's give some probabilities. Okay, let's give some probabilities. Uh, civil war in uh, twenty. I love, 20... I love it. I love it, I love I love that you do this. This is how every podcast. This is how every political discussion should be, and then we then we can fairly judge people. Well, I mean, you know, twenty twenty one hasn't really started yet, but let's. Uh, let's let's prorate it a little um 900 deaths due to internal conflict that like let's call that a civil war in 2021 what's your what's your probability on that what's your confidence on the probability uh 20 uh 2021 just this what this one year uh, yeah oh close to close to zero like okay point i mean point one is one and yeah a and, um, high confidence maybe point two with 95 percentiles maybe yeah one and point four something like point five something like that point five would be actually pretty high for a civil war right that'd be one in 200 um yeah i, I think I, I think i'm pretty com- comfortable with that with the 95th the 95th all right so, so so let's push this to 2028 um so it'll be most of the 2020s 
uh, what is your probability that there is um, over those years, let's say like, what is your confidence that none of those years have 1000 deaths, you know, civil war? Uh, so I said for the next year, about point uh, two. So these, these aren't independent probabilities. You have more yeah. time, but, I, but I, I don't suspect that, you know, I think Trump is so unique that if it was going to happen, it probably would have happened under Trump. And like I said, there's there's not a great chance that another Trump will come along. So it doesn't, waiting till 2028, I don't think bumps it up that much. Maybe you go from 0.2 to 0.4 or something like that. Okay. Well, I mean, that's one out of 200 or one out of 250. You're saying there's a one out of 100, one out of 250 chance that there is a civil war. I'm just, I'm trying to make it seem like yeah that's not i guess that's not nothing i mean i have seen people i mean people should put probabilities because you read these articles and they'll say you know we're dangerously close and you don't know if they mean one in a thousand or one in two or one in five right i mean that could mean anything um so yeah it's it's good to you put the numbers i don't know if that's a lot or not but i generally think when people say civil war is a distinct possibility i generally think they mean you know, higher probability than one in 250. I bet if you went to a pred- uh, had a predicted market on this, um, you know, I, I bet it would be like five cents. Yes. So my mind, my estimate is way lower than, uh, I, I sort of have a feel for this because I play these betting markets. So um, I have a feel of this. And I think it would be like a five to 10% thing on the betting market. So, so my view is much lower than, you know, you could say what the conventional wisdom is. Well, so, I mean, what about a coup? What about a coup in tw- between now and 2028? What is your probability on that? Um, maybe, I mean, okay. So I guess we have to, I mean, we, we have an easy definition for civil war. Um, and I guess a coup would be some kind of forcible removal. So I, I think something like that, you just look at it and you say, okay, that that's, that's sort of outside the bounds of sort of legal. Now look, if MAGA marched to Capitol Hill and they just sort of physically intimidated, like, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, it'd be shame if, you know, if you don't go along with this and then they threw out the votes and then they, uh, and then they crown Trump, you know, president for life or president for the next four four years. You know, president for life would be an easy case. Is that a coup or not? Well, that's that's sort of a, a borderline case. Um, yeah, I, I think I think odds are low. So I said I said by 2028.4 maybe for civil war. Um, well, there's only like two elections. So like civil war could happen like any time. Well, elections, there's only, you know, there's only like two elections. So I'd say probably lower than the civil war and Biden's going to be president for four years. I don't, I don't expect him to pull off a coup. So maybe probably even lower than civil war. I thought it was, you know, I, I, I see it more as a theoretical possibility. You just have to have sort of the right, uh, you know, I'm shocked actually the extent to which the Republican party has gone along with Trump's Trump's nonsense. I mean, it's really, it's really a high number. Um, It's, it still holds. And once again, you know, a smarter Trump maybe could pull it off. A smarter Trump would be a very different man and <laughs> may never come along. You know, that, that, that just, that just not something you can bank on. Yeah. I, I want to come back to some, some nerdery in a second, but let me ask you about the whole Trump thing. Cause I've had discussions with people about this, a smarter Trump, um, you know, a more strategic thinker rather than an instinctive tactician. Um, I'm being generous with the way I'm describing him, I think, but you know, let's put it that way. Um, you know, would would have been more effective, right? But in terms of what he wanted to do, but people point out, well, he probably wouldn't have gotten nominated yeah. and won. Like, is that, do you think that's correct? Yeah, I mean, I think part of Trump's genius, and this is something I go by feeling, just I have a lot of friends and family who are, you know, working class or who are Trump supporters, um, elderly. And uh, talking Wait, 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 that- El- elderly Trump supporters. Yeah. Is that code? Yeah. Is that code for white supremacists? 
Well, if you consider Arabs white white supremacists, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they are, uh, um, and I think that the, their minds are so melded with his. To me and you, Razi, me and you do not watch do not watch a lot of cable news, right? I mean, uh, I, I don't watch TV. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you're more elite than me. I watch. I at least watch. I watch some TV, and I try to watch some cable news just to sort of, uh, just to sort of uh, get a sense of where the political culture is. I think I just think it's necessary uh, to sort of, you know, just have a have a good opinion on these things. Um, and Trump is mind melded with them because he's watching TV all day. Now, p- even these people that I know probably don't watch as much TV as Trump, but they're watching, you know, a couple hours of Fox News a night, and his brain is sort of going in the same places and thinking about the same things that that where his brain is. A smarter Trump wouldn't wouldn't be able to do that. A smarter Trump like would have to sit there studying like talk radio and studying like Sean Hannity and like seeing how to appeal to them. And, and human beings have evolved, and I'm sure you know this. If there's one thing they evolved to do is to sort of uh, read other people well. And someone like Josh Hawley comes along, you say, oh, maybe that's a smart Trump. You know, it's funny. Somebody tweeted, somebody uh, wrote in Newsweek, they're like, watch out for this guy. This is Trump without the stupidity and the open racism. And I'm like, that's what made Trump successful. Like, Trump yeah. minus the stupidity and open racism is not Trump. And like, he does, he's not as successful. So you can tell, like, you could... That, that connection is not there. Howley can talk about bringing jobs back from China. He can talk about immigration. He can talk about elites and he can talk about people are out of touches and that. That doesn't give you the connection. It's not simply that. Um, so, yeah, Trump is a unique figure and, uh, you know, it might get very boring after him because it, people are discounting the pop a possibility that it just goes back to normal. There's Biden, there's Kamala, there's, you know, Nikki Haley and Ted Cruz coming down the line. I, unless it's Trump himself, I don't really see a smart Trump, you know, sort of waiting in the wings. What, what about, um, what about Don Jr.? Do you have, uh, I mean, you watch cable TV. He must be, I think he shows up on there. I mean, what, what, what about his instincts? What about his abilities? Do you think regression to the mean? <laughs> yes, regression to the mean as far as uh, connection. Um, you know, just going off the thing about cults of personality, they seem to pass on, you know, genetically pretty well. The you know the the air becomes sort of the the shelling point. They have the uh, around which all the you know sort of like a like a like a king who who goes off you know who goes off after a revolution and they try to reinstate him because there's sort of a name brand recognition of the monarchy and just that's where all that's where all the monarchists are going to go. So if Don Jr. wants it and Trump, uh, you know, gets behind him, you know, maybe I don't think it's going to be as deep of a connection, but you know, he's plugged into that universe. Um, uh, Trump doesn't seem to like his son as much as he likes Ivanka. Uh, and, um, we don't, we don't, we, we don't need to talk about the reasons for this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. I I think it's, I think it's, I think, I think that would be a pretty natural preference actually. Uh, but, yeah, I think she's underrated as part of, you know, people who think that Trumpism is about actually owning the libs and like being plugged into talk radio and like talking about uh, girl sports and trans and girl sports. If you think that's what Trump is about, then you think it's Don Jr. If you think it's just a cult of personality and then, uh, you know, uh, just about being able to sort of, you know, uh, just being there and having Trump's blessing and just sort of going up there and just saying whatever. And then Ivanka would be much more uh, appealing, I think, to normal Republicans and moderates. I think people are sleeping on her as potentially the the true heir. So basically, Ivanka is uh, is is Jacob, and uh, Don Jr. could be Esau. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, so yeah. We're, we're throwing out we're throwing out some references there. So I'm gonna let me just um, for the listener. I mean, I think a lot of you guys will know, but basically, a regression to the mean means 
you know, indicates, let's say that you have someone with exceptional characteristics. So for example, in a sports analogy would be Michael Jordan, arguably one of the two best basketball players in the history of the world. There's an argument whether LeBron James is as good. So let's just say one of the two. Um, so Michael Jordan has several sons and many of them, I think at least one of them played in college sports, but he wasn't actually that great as a college athlete, but he was still a college basketball player, which is still considerably better than 99.999% of people who play basketball, right? So, um, you know, he had some talent, but Michael Jordan is exceptional in many ways on many dimensions. And if you have a characteristic genetically, which is not entirely heritable, there's a lot of noise parameters, um, noisy factors, perhaps development, perhaps environment, perhaps contingency and happenstance. Um, that lead to Michael Jordan being who he, uh, you know, is like why, you know, exceptional in all these metrics. Well, the genetic part is heritable. It's going to go to his son. So they're tall. They're probably pretty muscular. They're pretty athletic. There's a lot of people like that, but Michael Jordan has a lot of special things. And some of those might just be random and they're not going to transmit to the offspring. Right. And so you have these cases with exceptional individuals who do not have, offspring who are nearly as exceptional even if the offspring are okay so michael jordan's sons are okay like they're much more athletic than the typical person but they're no michael jordan who's you know a, he's one of the best basketball players in the history of the world right um and so that's what i'm saying is you know if donald trump has these exceptional tactical instinctive characteristics of connecting to the maga people um this doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to be a very heritable characteristic. It could be due to various things in his life and in his experience combined with his personality. And so that's why I'm saying maybe it's regression to the mean because Don Jr. on paper is actually a much more MAGA person. He's much more conventionally conservative. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole biographical stuff that you can look up about Don Jr. and how his dad doesn't always respect him, you know? And so um, there's that issue. Can you talk, uh, can you talk, Richard, what a shelling point is? Uh, so a shelling point is just sort of a place where, you know, I, I, it's a place, how do, how do I explain this? It's been, a, I taught game theory at uh, UCLA, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a while. So uh, the sh a shelling point is basically somewhere where everyone agrees. So you want to coordinate in some way, right? But you don't know, it's a coordination problem and that you don't know. So me and Razib say we lost our phones and we want to meet in New York City. Um, and we're going to be in New York City, but we can't coordinate a, the exact the exact place. Razib, where would you go? Uh, where would I go? Empire State Building. Uh, I'd go to Times Square. So close. We'd go somewhere in Manhattan. Downtown. We'd go somewhere in Manhattan. Um, but so that's the idea. If he would have said Times Square too, you would have said, yeah. So a shelling point is basically, yeah, somewhere where you can, people can coordinate. It doesn't, it doesn't have, it's, it's sort of like an unconscious process, right? So if you're a monarchist, you, you usually you gather around the, the firstborn son of the king and you try to, you know, uh, you try to have a counter revolution. So the idea is that Trump is sort of a cult of personality. And I think with Trump, what he was in 2016 was sort of a shelling point for everyone who hated PC and he was just swallowing up so uh, so much attention that he was there. And so if MAGA has a, um, you know, if MAGA is going to go somewhere and Trump is whatever, he for whatever reason, he doesn't run again in 2024, which, which you know, he, he still might. Uh, the idea is that uh, an heir could be, would be the most natural person for sort of MAGA to go. And then putting aside, I mean, that's assuming independent coordination, putting aside the possibility that Trump just says, hey, this is my heir, which he would probably be more likely to do for one of his offspring than for some, uh, 
for some random congressman. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's that's the idea. So I, yeah, I think if there is an heir to MAGA, it, it has to be it has to be literally another Trump. Otherwise, these are just different people fighting, and none of them has that sort of star star power, that quality that just makes them stand out and makes everyone everyone come to them and uh, to the uh, at the expense of everyone else. Well, so uh, you know, uh, we're talking about dynasties here. Um, so you know. I'm a population geneticist. I have a, like kind of a cognitive toolkit. I have some experience. I have some heuristics that I use to interpret, you know, the world. And so I like to ask you as a political scientist, you know, these sorts of questions, just, you know, for the listener, just give me some context why I ask you these sorts of random questions, because for you, they're not as random. Uh, dynasties. Uh, like, what do we know about political dynasties in democratic societies? Like, you know, we have had a few, but not nearly as many as, say, India and some other countries. Yeah, I mean, politics is one of those things where, you know, people debate how much talent and connections matter in various things. I, th- I think that politics is one place where clearly connections matter a lot more than any uh, than anywhere else. So um, you do, you know, the, the probably the best predictor of being a president or being congressman is having a father who was. We don't have dynasties in the same way. Uh, that they do in India, where the, for example, where they just sort of go on forever. Um, you know, Bushes. You know, they had uh, there was a fa- the father and the son, and there was a grandfather too. Next generation, we'll see. But our politics seems to be a little bit too open for it to go uh, beyond two to three generations. But you know, you could see you could see how it makes sense. You know, politics is to a great extent. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a great extent of finding these sort. It's a coordination problem. People working together, finding a, a sort of a natural person to put their support behind. It's about brand names. It's about obviously the connections, knowing how to do it. Um, so yeah, p- political dynasties. Political dynasties are common in democracies, but not as much as uh, some other places. I'd say the U.S. You know, I, I don't know. Um, that much about like somewhere like France, but a sort of a more elite uh, system where I, you know, my understanding is that French are the French leaders are selected among an academic elite. You have so people like uh, Le Pen, um, who was are sort of outside of that. My understanding is that in, in a lot of European countries, it's it's not as easy. They're even more less like they're even less likely uh, to be dynasties than the, uh, the United States. But uh, yeah, I mean, we could be. I mean, I the. The thing about the Trump movement is, is, is it's something new. I mean, I do believe it's not just it's not just, you know, the natural culmination of sort of the Tea Party or, you know, what the right's been doing for the last 30 years. I think he's brought a lot of people into politics that weren't there before. I think the Tea Party, for example, 10 years ago was a lot of people who were already Republican activists who had conservative views, who were just sort of, you know, angry and, and you know, they were reacting to Obama. And, and it, it was something like we'd seen before. Trump is, you know, some of those, it's some of the same people, but it's also a lot of people who seem not to have been that involved in politics before. Um, that's why he's actually pretty good for Republican Republican turnout. Democrats had this idea that if they just got turnout on, uh, uh, high enough, they would just you know sweep elections forever. And and they were freaking out over Texas in uh, the last election because they, the turnout was so high they could just see from the early voting. They said we have a real chance here. Well, it turned out Trump is you know Trump is, is really you know populist in, in the sense that a lot of people like him who aren't normally involved in politics. While Tea Party was just you know a lot of high high propensity voters becoming involved, and then you know um, this sort of the same thing we've always seen with the uh, with the GOP. So. 
because Trumpism is something new, I think the dynasty model sort of makes sense for understanding it in a way that it doesn't for something else. Like, you know, if it's an ideological movement, you think there's an ideological error. If it's just a cult of personality, then you wouldn't expect an ideological error because, you know, there there is some ideology sort of to Trump. But I, I don't th- if you th- I think if you're thinking in ideological terms, you're sort of missing what's going on. Yeah, that's a, that, I mean, that's that's um, that makes sense. I mean, that, that's a really good point. Uh, so, you know, I, let me ask you then uh, what's going on with Georgia? I'm you know, because of everything that happened on the Capitol and I, I want to loop back to that. I want to loop back to these people, the, the, the Viking guy and all of this weirdness, um, you know, but uh, Georgia, the Democrats won two Senate races, which is pretty shocking to me, actually. Um, I still haven't like totally internalized it uh, that Georgia voted for Biden. And then there's a follow up with the two Senate races. Like, have you looked into that as a political science like, scientist? What went on? Like, the, I know the mainstream narrative is that uh, there was a depression in turnout on the margin in uh, among the Trump people, either because Trump wasn't on the ballot or because he discouraged them from showing up because he was claiming that it was going to be fraudulent anyway. Uh, like, like, do you have any insights on that? Uh, I mean, yeah, I've looked at I've looked at the data that probably you've looked at too. Um, yeah, Georgia, I mean, is an interesting case, and there was a New York Times story about um Stacey Abrams actually, and I, I actually there was a the New York Times podcast. There was also a, um also a uh, uh, an interview with her, and I was sort of as a political scientist, I say I was impressed with sort of her acumen. She wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of uh, political analysis is sort of politically correct. So what Stacey Abrams says in this interview is that you know people in Georgia always wanted to go after you know these these moderate uh, white voters or whatever white voters we can get, and the best predictor by far is race. Um, and how you vote in the South. So I'm just going to just try to, you know, get get as many black votes as possible. And we, we're going to go for that. I mean, if you have, you know, this this demographic that votes 90 plus percent for you, I mean, you want to turn that out to the greatest extent possible. The black population is much higher in Georgia than it is in the uh, uh, in the uh, American electorate as a whole. I think it's something like 30 percent or something like that. Um, so this was this was her idea. And I don't know why it hasn't been replicated somebody else some, everywhere else. Like maybe like there's just other things going on in Georgia and or maybe Stacey Abrams is just that great of a political strategist. I, I, I don't know if that's the case, but, you know, there does seem to have been a lot of increase in uh, regi- in registrations. Um, and then, yeah, the, the turnout, the New York Times just has a great graphic on um, where turnout went up and where it went down. So it, it went down. Uh, more in it went down everywhere because it's a, it's a runoff. There's a you know there's a drop off compared to the general election, but it went down more in white working class districts compared to uh, uh, to compared to African American places. And when when the races are that polarized, the election almost becomes like a uh, almost becomes like a census, especially um, non college whites in the South. They're 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 you know they're overwhelmingly overwhelmingly Republicans. Uh, so it's completely plausible to me that Trump walking around. I mean, he went to war. I mean, this is not small. Like he went to war with the governor and the secretary of state who are both both republicans he told people the election was fake that i mean there was a, there's videos of Arana mcdaniel the rnc chair going down to georgia and having your votes tell her why should we even vote like it's not gonna count and so you know this is a one two percent you know d- d- uh, difference from the from the uh, presidential election um it's not it's not it's not shocking to me especially after the uh the, what i saw biden won and then i saw what trump was sort of doing after that it wasn't shocking to me that the democrats also um took those two seats. So 
it, it matters. It, it, I mean, it matters. It matters. Maybe you know, not not all that much now. The uh, uh, the median voter is uh, Joe Manchin um, rather than uh, you know Susan Collins or whatever um, in the Senate. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a lesson. Don't don't tell your voters the election is fake. Yeah, this is this is a clear case of Trump um, looking out for himself more than he was looking out for the party. And I think given the given what we saw in the uh, in November election, it wasn't really surprising that they they took those Senate seats too. Uh, do you know Adam Elkis at George Mason? Do you know uh, of him? No, I don't. Okay. Anyway, he's uh, we've been mutual followers for ten years, and apparently Ossoff is a big fan of his Twitter account. Well, you know he's who like, likes uh, Coleman Hughes. He follows Coleman Hughes and uh, a couple other people that are actually interesting. So maybe we're getting a maybe the intellectual dark web it has a has a faction wait, in the Republican Party are you, and Democrats. Wait, are you saying Ossoff is a member? He is a. <laughs> are you saying Eric Weinstein is controlling the Senate? It could be, man. It could be. The, uh... Okay, that's. I, I don't know if I don't know if I should uh, put this podcast out in public. Like, <laughs> we don't want to give. We don't want to. It's like. And sometimes people will follow. Will follow other people, and but they'll follow like a hundred thousand people. Like Obama follows like fifty thousand people or something. So if you're followed by Obama, it's no big deal. And I looked at Ossoff's actually the number of followers, and it's not that much. It's like a few thousand. So like every single person in that that he's following, he knows a little, you know, something about. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's great that he's following Colin Hughes. I hope he has an influence on him. Well, I mean, if you look at Ossoff's browser history, it could be that he's actually loaded the website Quillette. <laughs> what do you think? An Af- who is more likely to have read uh, Quillette regularly? Uh, your typical Republican congressman or your typical Democrat? Uh, probably Democrat, frankly. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. I, I mean, think. just the moderate Democrats, you know, um, they might I don't they're not even going to hate read. It's just because the, the left is so far left that. You know, they secretly just read it because they always have the thing that they're angry about. So I think that that's what's going on there. Uh, so let, let's talk about probabilities in Georgia. Um, so, you know, we talked about this special election and they won both. Well, Warnock is up again in 2022. What do you think are the chances that the Republicans take it back? Do you think it'll regress back to the mean? Well, here's the thing about midterm elections. Uh Almost always the president's uh, first midterm election, whatever, whoever wins the presidency, the first midterm election, they lose seats in Congress. So uh, and this is just such a regularity, you know, for the last uh, several decades, going back to like Truman and before that, uh, you know, uh, before Truman. I don't know if it goes back. I know it goes back to at least Truman. So you've got, you know, you've got 70, 75 years of like the modern era of this um, of this being a regular rule. So. Yeah, midterms tend to be tough for the uh, incumbent's party. Uh, the, the Tea Party wave was during Obama's uh, first term. You, you saw that um, uh, that uh, during Trump's uh, first term, his first midterm. You know, they lost they lost the House. George W. Bush was an exception to this, but this was only like a year after nine eleven, and so he was sort of riding high off of that. Um, but generally, yeah. So I, I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you get regression to the mean. I don't know what the new mean is in Georgia. Maybe the new mean is is a fifty fifty state. Uh, yeah like sort of Colorado or Virginia, they were, they were red states and they went blue very quickly without much time as purple. Um, uh, but you know, give if 50, 50 is the mean and, uh, and, uh, you know, senators tend to, uh, congressmen and senators tend not to do good, uh, if they're belong to the same party as the president in midterm. Yeah. I'd say probably more likely than not Republicans take it, you know, maybe 60%. I don't know. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a pretty good shot though for, you know, it's not, we're not talking Alabama here where there was a freak oh, yeah. event. Yeah, Alabama and Georgia, yeah, are not are not the same. Alabama is uh, 
<laughs> yeah, Alabama is more solidly red. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I, the Republicans probably favored in a neutral year. Maybe that's it's about it's about even. But in a yeah, in a midterm year with uh, um, with Warnock and then with Democrats in control of Congress, you know, it's easy to be in opposition. I mean, you could see why this makes sense. Things go wrong, and then just like you know, you just say, well, that's that's the president. He sort of you know gets all the heat for it. Um, and so you could see why this would happen. So yeah, more likely than not, it would probably go back. I think the uh, you know the Senate map I think is. Uh, relatively good for, I, I have to look at the Senate map for 2022. The map matters so much. It matters a lot more than it used to. Individual um, candidates and their qualities don't seem to matter as much as partisanship anymore. So, you know, if you look at the layout of the map, you'll get a better idea than than probably looking at the individual candidates. Who the Republicans nominate, I mean, Georgia too matters. I mean, they're, uh, they could be going at a civil war for themselves. They have the uh, uh, camp, you know, the governor is going to be basically the uh, target number one of the MAGA people. And, you know, who knows how that shakes out. So, um, yeah, there's, there'll be a lot interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to say it. So, you know, uh, I did have a, did do a podcast earlier, um, with David Shore, uh, the the famed uh, heterodox social democrat, uh, you know, uncancelable, uh, yeah, and you know he was uh, he was pretty um, based on the map and how it was pro Republican. But after the last couple of months and what's going on between MAGA and anti MAGA Republicans, I wonder if that matters as much because there might be a lot more infighting on the right in the next couple of years than you would rationally have assumed. Like, what do you think of that question, that consideration? I think the, I think there's a great possibility that MAGA just gets shut down, that the, the Trump just loses every, every megaphone he has. He's, he's not on Twitter. He's not on Facebook, right? They're not, I don't, I don't see them reinstating him anytime soon. I think Fox news, um, didn't like him before he became president. I think they're, they're sort of over him. Um, and so you need, you know, you need, um, you need a way to mobilize he, this, this, this thing needs a way to survive. I know I was just saying he could have a dynasty. I mean, it's, it's, it's unpredictable. I, I could see it go anywhere from he disappears to he, uh, you know, he sort of continues controlling the party. But, you know, now that I think about it, I, I think the the deplatforming is, is just a, a really, really big deal. Um, and yeah, I, I guess, I guess when I look at it now, I know that's why maybe the air is better because Don Jr. and Ivanka can at least tweet. Maybe Trump tries to, tries to force them to give them his account and try, it gets them banned too, but you know, they're going to actually have Twitter accounts, uh, while he doesn't, um, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, the, the thing is about the Republican party is that it used to be actually about, you know, when you'd get primary, it was about issues. So the Tea party was sort of like, you know, you spend too much, you're too big government. Uh, there was this, uh, sort of this thing of primarying people for being, uh, too, um, too friendly to immigration. Um, this would just be, do you like Trump enough or, uh, you know, or not. And once the platform is gone and once the presidency is gone, I don't know how durable that'll be. I mean, he's 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 still president. I mean, literally being the president of the United States is a huge, huge platform. Um, and, you know, people are going to sort of be drawn to you just for that. Um, once that's gone, I don't know. And you could just see the Republicans just sort of, uh, you, you know, just sort of going back to normally, going back to what they've been. I, I don't know. It sort of depends on the party is just interesting because it's so ideologically adrift. I mean, it's not like there's these factions where some are saying, you know, uh, we need bigger government. I mean, there are, there, there really are, but what they're fighting over is, is the election real? You know, are you going to fight for Trump? This is what's causing the split, right? And Trump goes away. Maybe they'll be fighting over something else, 
but maybe maybe they're not. Maybe the Trump people just sort of get discouraged and you know are not involved in politics for for a while. I I don't know. But the future of the Republican Party is sort of a it's it's sort of hard to, it's hard to guess. Yeah. So I mean, you know, before the unpleasantness of the of the sixth and even maybe in early December, I was you know assuming that the Republicans would win back in 2022. Now I'm very uncertain. So like, you know, estimate probability, I'd say like 50%. Like I know what, I know what the history is, but you know, if you lose 10 to 20% of people uh, because of ideological faction or, you know, cult of personality, like these sorts of issues, you're going to lose. So, I mean, what do you think about that hypothesis? The well, I mean, Trump is also a great mobilizer for the other side too. So I don't know if the resistance wine moms are, are as excited when it's Biden trying to pass some incremental, you know, tech, uh, raising of taxes or, uh, you know, incremental healthcare bill, you know, are, are those people going to be as excited as they once were? I, I don't know. Right. So it's, um, you know, the, the Trump going away sort of cuts both ways. You could imagine you just go back to the place where the high propensity Republican voters show out, you know, show up, which was sort of seen as the norm 10 years ago on the Democrats. Um, less so. I mean, one thing that was uh, interesting in the Purdue, um, uh, Purdue Loeffler, uh, Georgia, Georgia races is that the, the areas that were um, highly educated white swung uh, much more towards the Republican senators. So they sort of came home with these people who did not like Trump all that much. Uh, so the sort of high propensity voters might be going uh, back to the Republican Party. You might get a depression in the crazy people on sort of both sides, and it might be good for the Republican Party. I, I just I just don't know. This is a, you know, I, it's easy to predict, I think, that there's not going to be a civil war. I think it's harder to predict the future sort of trajectory of American politics. There's just a lot going on. Well, I mean, I guess if I had asked you this question, because you know, I'm not a political. I'm not a political scientist. I'm just a simple geneticist. You know, <laughs> uh, if if you had asked me this question in the middle of November, I would have said, "Well, I mean, I'm pretty confident that the Republicans are going to take back in 2022 because, like, look at the results, um, and you know, they they did okay even with Trump as a headwind, and he's not going to be on the ticket anymore in 2022. And I know about the midterms, blah blah blah, all of these things, um, but." the last month has been crazy. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's been crazy. And so now I'm just like really uncertain of these sorts of truisms and these patterns. Yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah. I mean, if someone told you three years ago, one of the main intellectual forces in the Republican party would be the belief that satanic pedophiles were sort of running the world and Trump was going to save us from them. I think you would have said that was, that was pretty crazy. Um, and it doesn't seem like, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, I, th I think QAnon is actually going to go away too. I think they're going to go all the way of the, the alt-right. I think that, I think the deplatforming and the censorship uh, sort of works. Um, you know, you could imagine a world where Republicans sort of see Silicon Valley as doing their dirty work for them and they let, they'll fundraise and sort of saber rattle against them, but secretly they're happy that they're taking, they're taking care of this Trump problem, <laughs> taking care of the Trump problem for them. You know, I, I think it was a little bit like that with 2016. A lot of people who were being banned in 2016, 2017 were sort of alt-right uh, white nationalist people like that. Republicans were, uh, you know, happy to see them go. They were trolling Ben Shapiro more than, more than anyone else. Um, QAnon, you know, might find itself in a, um, in a similar place and the Republican party could, you know, sort of just run these generic suits who win elections just because of the backlash to wokeness. Um, I, you're right that the, the, the last month has been crazy. I think if we had an election today, 
like with all the crazies that the Republicans would be in a little bit of trouble, but attention spans are short. And, and in two years, if, you know, just the headlines start being about something Biden failed at, if something you know bad happens, Republicans just sort of, you know, smile and look nice and, and uh, get ready for 2022, you know, you, you never know. Things could, things could just snap back to normal. I wouldn't, I, I don't, you know, I, I, it, yeah, it went, it went a couple, yeah, for me, I went through this roller coaster too because i like you right afterwards i thought that um the republicans were actually in good shape just as long as it's not trump you know they're going to be okay um because you know there's just this backlash to wokeness and this was a terrible situation for republicans just because trump has never been uh that popular um biden was the most moderate candidate i think uh, and then the coronavirus I, i think a lot of things just sort of lined up for them pretty well um and they barely won right they barely uh, they barely squeaked it out. So I said, oh, Republicans have a, have a decent future. And then the Republican, the infighting came. I'm like, oh my God, Trump is going to be just a thorn in their side for the next few years, like stopping them from being normal. And then Trump got deplatformed. And I'm like, wait a minute, this, this might work out for Mitch McConnell after, <laughs> after all, <laughs> you know, they, that, that problem might be solved for them. Uh, so, so we'll see, it's, it's, you know, if, if you change your mind on something like that, you know, uh, three times in, in, in two months, you know, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't hazard too much predictions about what's going to happen uh, two or four years down the line. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't either. I just, I just want to be concrete in that it seemed like a return to normalcy in a way was feasible in November, but, um, Oh, I think it's, I think it's more feasible. I I think Trump is uniquely important. I I just think that he's just such a singular figure. And I think if he he just goes away, I mean, I think the odds of going back to normality are much, I don't, I'm not one of these people who believes in deeper forces. I mean, they, they exist, but often it's just, it's just, you know, a, a really unique politician is there and he's doing some stuff. And if he's gone, you know, the, the, the craziness that's sort of associated with him goes with him. Okay. Okay. So the craziness that that goes with it, you know, is associated with him goes with him. So uh, a lot of the people, like some of the people who rushed the Capitol were normal upper middle class retiree types, which is pretty bizarre. But then you had like the Viking guy, you had the guy, the son of the judge in New York, uh, you had baked Alaska, just you had a lot of random weirdos. So do these weirdos just kind of disappear or are they here to stay? Yeah, I mean people, you know, it's like different parts of the population become mobilized at different times in history depending on sort of, you know, so there was a lot of people who were, you know, maybe a sort of white nationalists or inclined in that direction who when they saw Trump in 2016 it really galvanized them because there was somebody saying some Stuff that was, you know, foregrounding the immigration issue, talking about stuff they they cared about. Um, and, you know, Antifa, you know, who, where were they, you know, five years ago? They were, uh, you know, they were probably just broke college students. They were doing Occupy. Uh, they were doing Occupy Wall Street uh, before that. Um, you know, Ross Perot brought out a lot of voters that just some people just didn't like either party. And this guy sort of talked like a businessman. He was sort of a, a proto-Trump. And those people were um, low propensity voters that happened to turn out for Ross Perot. Um, so you have these different points in history. And so, you know, Viking man was Viking man. He had his, you know, genetics, he had his genetic qualities and his, you know, his unique personality as an individual and these other people dead. And, you know, if you, if you, if you transport him into 1990s, uh, 1996 presidential election and it's Bill Clinton and Bob Dole and the joke in popular culture was there's no difference between these two. They're just two white guys in a suit, right? Viking man doesn't care about politics. He gets into 
you know, whatever video games, you know, extreme sports. I don't know. I don't know what Viking man, you know, does in his free time. Right. But he just stops caring about politics because there's, there's not somebody who really speaks to him in that way. Um, so you can imagine, yeah, they, 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 they go away. I mean, that, that that's, it, it could be as simple as that. They, they, you know, they're, they're still living their lives, but they're just, they're not mobilized. They don't feel like they're not, you know, energized. They don't feel like there's a movement that that's theirs. Um, and, you know, things sort of go back to normal politics. I, yeah, I don't know. Well, so, so Trump, Trump mobilized a lot of these kind of, I don't want to say young losers, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, young yeah. male losers, right? There, there's a, there's a certain group of young guys drinking cheap beer, uh, marginally employed, and these aren't most of the you know because the average Trump voter is just the average Republican, but there's these people on the margin, and they get a lot of airtime yeah. and newspaper yeah, coverage because there's no, they don't have to be marginally employed. I, I don't know if that's a great predictor. They're you know they could be very successful whatever they could be successful entrepreneurs small business owners i mean i, I don't i don't know necessarily they have to be marginal. so maybe some are uh marginally employed and they see you know trump is someone there for them uh but i, I think it's more of sort of a psycholo- psychological trait thing you know not very intellectual you don't like wokeness and you don't you know you have nothing in common with these republicans who are just suits who talk about you know tax cuts and small government and if that's the choice, you just don't care about politics. You don't get excited about it. And you're given a guy like Trump who's just like a businessman and telling you, you know, satanic pedophiles around the world. You know, conspiracy theorists are just conspiracy theorists are the most underrepresented people in in Congress and among elites. So just like a guy who's sort of friendly to conspiracy theories, every conspiracy nut subculture likes it from, the, uh, you know, from 9-11 truthers to anti anti-vaxxers um, to um you know, uh, just, you know, COVID denialist um, to QAnon, right? So the, just this, the fact that this guy is sort of a, um, it sort of it signals he's open to that. He's sort of, you know, the same kind of guy as you. And he's, you know, he's sort of this, uh, he's got this sort of macho personality and he's, he doesn't care about really ideas. He just sort of wants to win and attack elites and, and that, that appeals to a certain person. You, you don't always have that choice, right? You, you always, you also, you always have like, you know, you're, you're only given a menu of a few options at any one time. Right in a, in a, in national politics, and some people will pay attention to nothing below the presidency. So, like in the in the primaries, you have a few you know uh, a few candidates on uh, serious candidates on each side. Then you have the the presidential election, and it, you know there could be times when there's just nobody who speaks to the people who were storming the Capitol. Um, that's possible, right? He goes away, and you know maybe maybe they maybe they maybe they maybe they stay as Republicans. Maybe they get into it. I, I just, I think a lot of those people sort of love the entertainment value. And I think without Trump, it just, it just sort of gets boring. You can listen to, you know, James Jordan and Matt Gates talking about uh, uh, Hunter Biden's emails. It's just not as fun as Trump calling, you know, Rosie o- O'Donnell a fat pig. Right? I mean, people's tastes vary a lot. And, and to say this is like, you know, it's, it sounds a little bit insulting or condescending, but you know, a lot of people like trashy reality TV. A lot of people like Jerry Springer. A lot of people are drawn to this stuff. I don't. I don't think we can. We can deny this. Well, I mean, so you know, when Andrew Jackson, who Trump is ostensibly a fan of, came to the United States, uh, you know, uh, came to the White House, you know, came to D.C., became president, he transformed the presidency, and also, you know, just the political alliances, whatever. The age of Jackson is a big deal, big deal. But uh, talking to you. It sounds like you're saying Trump could be a flash in the pan. Um, we heard after the election about a realignment, working class Republican versus professional managerial class Democrats, uh, perhaps some erosion among young Latinos, especially men, Latinx men, 
um, moving into the Republican camp. Uh, but do you think that that's all just kind of noise and that'll just like fade as Trump fades? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a report with George Howley at CSBI, CSBICenter.org. Uh, you could see it, we call it the National Populist Illusion. And it's a very data heavy sort of dive into this idea that Republicans became the working class party. I, I, Trump was good for Republican turnout, good for Democrat turnout, too, I'm sure. Um, but if you look at the demographics, you know, who voted for Trump, it, it's um, it's uh you know, it's pretty much the same people. I mean, it's the same people who voted before. So it's, it's you know, the percentage of Republicans, the percentage of white men. There was a big shift from college educated whites going away from the Republican Party and non-college whites going towards the Republican Party. So Republicans sort of switched college whites for uh, for non-college whites. But income has always been a poor predictor of how people vote. And it didn't become a better predictor when Trump came along. Um, one thing David Short uh, talked about is the places that actually have succeeded from globalization, you know, places in Iowa, for example, where they sell soybeans to China or places where they have a, a uh, uh, industry that's exporting a lot of things to different parts of the country. And those people, if, if they are college non-educated, if they're non-college educated in their white areas, they still shifted to Trump just as much as globalization's losers, right? It's not about some people are winning from globalization and some people are losing from globalization. This is this is too, um, you know, this is too a materialist view of uh, of politics. It's it's a class thing where the, col- where the college, well, Trump was um, uh, speaking to a certain kind of person and he was repelling another kind of person and beneath the surface most didn't change in how people voted you know if you you gave the predictors of voting republican if you were a married white man you know who was 45 with three children and went to church every every weekend um you were you know overwhelming a trump supporter and if you were you know uh, a single latina living in los angeles whatever you were likely um to be a uh, to be a democrat voter uh the other the, uh, you know the other thing you, uh, you mentioned i think is interesting is the Hispanic and uh, Asian and to a lesser extent black shift towards Trump. Um, I think, I think it's real. It's certainly real. Some of those shifts were huge, but the shifts were compared to 2016 where Trump's numbers with those, with immigrant communities just had plummeted. So they had done worse than, uh, so it was sort of a regression to the mean actually, where the Hispanic vote for Trump was worse than Hispanic votes for other Republicans. George W. Bush, you know, probably did better with Hispanics um, in 2004 than Trump. Trump did in 2020. Trump just massively overperformed with Hispanics, particularly Cubans. I think there's some foreign policy uh, stuff going on with uh, Cubans and maybe Venezuelans and some of these other groups. Uh, but it, it was more of a regression to the mean and you know a big jump from 2016 than it was a realignment. You know, the the Asian Hispanic vote about you know 30 40 percent, uh, Republican 40 percent as the high end maybe gets down to uh, mid 20s in, in Trump 2016 when he really really repulsed immigrant Im- uh, immigrant communities. And I think it's actually the reason he did better in 2020. I think it goes against sort of the working class um, na- the working class party narrative. I think he just stopped talking about immigration. I think in 2016 he ran on immigration as his main issue. They tested the theory that you can have a multi working cl- you know multi racial working class coalition by just talking about immigration and he, he you know he plummeted it was it was a very racially polarized election now on immigration he actually the policy has been a little bit more restrictionist um he's done a little things a few things but i've looked at you know if he talks about immigration and he never talked about immigration at all during the 2020 campaign and i think it's just sort of a regression i mean that it was immigration was sort of the main issue this turned off a lot of voters and then um, when it wasn't that big of an issue in 2020 they sort of came back to to Trump. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't think Trump has shaken. Yeah. That's another, that's a, you know, that's another thing that a lot of things people say are sort of, are, are not backed up by the data. I think if, there, if there's a theme to this conversation, it's that. 
Yeah, and um, I will link uh, in the show notes uh, to your report. Um, uh, actually, you know, I, I want to ask you um, about the Democrats because we've been talking about Trump and the Republicans. Uh, I want to ask you about the Democrats, but um, I want to talk about this new nonprofit that you started, um, which has been putting out reports. They're really great, really interesting. Um, you know, you were on, you were on the realignment, uh, and you just, you know, were talking about your stuff about cultural issues and how you basically rocked Sagar and Jetty's whole worldview. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you made a difference. Good. You made a difference. But um, can you talk about um your nonprofit and also um what do you think about um so you have you have like you know Eric Kaufman and uh, you know I don't know Holly too well but you have Goldberg Zach Goldberg. Um, it's a pretty based lineup. What do you think about? <laughs> What do you think about Conquest's law and what might happen if you guys actually succeed? Uh, con- so uh, I should mention also, yeah, you mentioned uh, George. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Eric, Zach. Uh, Susie Molesky is also with us. She's a she's a, a grad student at USC. She's also she's also great. Does a lot of stuff on uh, on uh, uh, NGOs and sort of virtue signaling and then how you know they have uh, from an evidence based perspective a lot of uh, what they do doesn't work. So I gotta uh, mention her too. So Conquest's law is that the one where the, the is that the one where you become left wing if you're not explicitly right wing? Is that it? Yes, yes. And so because you guys are nonpartisan. Um yeah, I mean look, I, I this it was started with the idea that it was it started the idea that it's sort of opposition to the mainstream of academia and what it's doing. We draw on academia too. So it, it's sort of from within academia in the sense that we, we, some of us are academics and we use a lot of tools in academia that the, the, uh, in the literature that we think are valuable and provide a lens through which to understand the world. Uh, but we don't like, you know, we're sort of, uh, we're, we're, um, we're hesitant or we're sort of, um, we're trying to overcome the problem of, uh, political bias and sort of just the inex- inaccessibility of, of uh, a lot of the good work that's been done. Um, so, for example, the Washington Post op-ed on civil war was just bringing in um, was just bringing in uh, research on civil war into the American context, and the the, the discussions I saw in the newspapers and on TV are sort of uh, been evidence free. Um, so, yeah, I, I you know I, I think it's personnel as policy. I mean, I think we've got a lot of great people. I think a lot of our people have made a name for themselves, not necessarily being conservative, but have just built a lot of uh, uh, intellectual capital as just being good academics, as people who do rigorous uh, database work. Zach's uh, Zach is you know a gra- you know it's, it's egalitarian in the sense that you can you can go to the public and you can jump the line even though you you are a sort of a junior person in academia so zach for example um is a graduate student right now he's a, he's still a phd student and he discovered the great awakening and iglesias found it wrote about it in vox iglesias actually i think might have came up with the term great awakening yeah, he came up with the term but but exactly. zach came up with the data and the result yeah, ex- exactly. So I think the Great Awakening. If you, you know, if you um, listed maybe the five, ten most actually, actually, Richard, back yeah. up quickly. Tell the listener what the Great Awakening is. Yeah. So I'll just finish. So Zach, I mean, I would say it's one of the most important ideas that sort of smart people have adopted um, in the last ten years. Um, you know, that regarding sort of where our culture has gone, it, it's become sort of conventional wisdom now. And the Great Awakening is the idea that basically there was a radical shift to the left 
um, among mainstream liberal institutions. Name the Democratic Party, party um, but mainly the press. I shouldn't call them a democratic institution, but just say like mainstream liberal institutions uh, towards um, far left views on uh, ra- uh, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation. So if you go back to um, the New York Times, and it's backed up in data f- among white Democrats too, right? So it, it's sort of a top-down phenomenon where you, it's, you started at the elite level. So if you go back to the New York Times and you look at their, the, the words that they use, the Washington Post, the other major papers, you see a huge takeoff around 2010, 2011 in words like systematic racism, right? And like the words, you know, phrases like white privilege, uh, LGBTQ. I don't know about that one specifically, actually, but, um, you know, just ideas like this, anything having to do with that, you know, uh, sexism, patriarchy, stuff like that. And you can look at the graphs. They're actually beautiful. They, it just takes off. Um, and then you look at democratic, uh, you look at opinion among white Democrats and it moves on these issues. So 12 years ago, um, a lot of white Democrats were anti-immigration. They wanted less immigration. Um, Obama, you know, I'm reading Obama's memoirs, and it's fascinating how much of his time and mental energy um, was spent on walking on eggshells on these racial issues. Because there was the idea if you went just a little bit sort of outside the mainstream, there would be this, you know, huge backlash even among Republican Democrats would be widespread among American society. Well, Republicans haven't changed that much on these issues in the last uh, 10 years, but Democrats have. And so now it's more evenly divided on, you know, a question like reparations can be even discussed seriously or advocated by uh, uh, presidential candidates. That would have been unthinkable even in the Democratic primary uh, five or 10 years ago. Somebody actually did a, a study of how often um, in the Democratic debates, just 2016 versus 2020, they mentioned words like black and white and this and that. And, it, you know, it just goes through the roof, you know, just the last four years. So the Democratic Party is sort of a lagging indicator. People blame the Democrats and they, they sort of direct their energy at, at sort of Democratic politicians. I think that's a little bit of a, a mistake. I think it's a lagging indicator. I think the first thing, you, you know, that happened, and Zach has demonstrated this in, the fall, in an article he wrote in Tablet, sort of uh, laid down the chronology in that. It starts in the New York Times. It's just literally the New York Times. I mean, it's that. I mean, it probably starts in academia. I mean, these ideas were there first. And so it's this it's, it's top down. And so it's the New York Times. It's the other prestige media. And then it's Democratic politicians. And along with the politicians, I mean, the Democratic uh, uh, voter, Democratic white Democrats. And then with that, you see sort of the Democratic Party going woke. And I think that was sort of, that was lagging. That was, you know, Obama didn't even support gay marriage, I think, until, uh, you know, well, gay marriage, I think, is is a little bit different. So like around 2011, this was when the Great Awakening was taking off. And then you see, um, you see, like nobody in 2011 or 2012 was talking about, well, Obama, yeah, his second term, right? So 20, yeah, so I think I'm right. So either 2014, he um, started supporting gay marriage. So this was like five years after the Great Awakening started. And even then, nobody was talking about whiteness to say whiteness was would have been very strange for a politician yeah so there's sort of a yeah lagging indicator and it was it was zach who just you know just with data and just clearly you sort of you know the, the graphs are not ambiguous you look at them it's just a straight line going up around uh 2010 and 2011 and you know i think people are understanding there was something revolutionary happening and and sort of uh uh what's been happening with the, sort of the george floyd protests and these other things you've seen you know corporations go woke i think that's another just lagging indicator that people sort of mistake for causing all of this when it, when it really didn't well so you know we were talking about shelling points earlier and uh i think the george floyd incident his death his killing I think I mean, that was a shelling point, right? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think that a lot of these, you know, even like the more ambiguous cases would cause um, a lot of unrest in the inner cities. I think the video of this one was just so terrible. Um, 
that it really just hit people in a different way, whether it's uh, actually an indication of greater problems with policing, you know, that depends on your politics. Uh, well, the, the, your politics determines what you think about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. I think these issues, these concerns about race are always out there and it sort of needs an event for there to be a spark. Well, so, you know, we talked about the Republicans a lot and how they were, um, you know, maybe the Trump era is going to be an aberration. I mean, we'll see, you know, but um, that's that's what I'm getting from you as your modal probability, your modal, um, you know, if you had to put money on it and you do bet on the markets, so you probably would put money on it, right? Yeah, I, I uh, there's no, uh, you know, there's a, there's markets on uh, whether Trump's going to be impeached or not. I went, I went no, or not. I mean, convicted, impeached. He's obviously going to be impeached probably by the time, uh, by the time your listeners listen to this. Um, but yeah, I, I think modal is he goes, yeah, he goes away just because I think the platform is really important. I mean, this happened. This these people like Milo um, and Gavin McInnes were huge in 2016, 2017. They were, uh, you know, causing riots at Berkeley. They're just, they're just not there anymore. I mean, it, it, you know, it's 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 sort of a cope to say censorship is going to cause this backlash like no then like every dictator in history who censored his opponents has been making a mistake <laughs> i doubt that it usually it usually just works and i think that you know people were saying trump was going to get banned from twitter on january 20th anyway um just because you know he probably violates the rules a lot uh but now you know he's, he's probably just going to be completely deplatformed and you know i i, I think the modal possible probability is yeah yeah, he probably just goes away because he, even he has that connection with uh, Republican voters. He just doesn't have a way to uh, speak to them directly. Uh, maybe he speak, you know, so the real, you know, uh, the really excited people. You know, they go on Gab or they uh, or they um, or they go on Telegram or wherever wherever Trump goes. He's going to have legal problems too. I mean, that's that's the thing too is civil lawsuits, potentially criminal lawsuits. I think his uh, probability of getting. Uh, uh, prosecuted has gone up, probably not for uh, for this specific event. It's very hard uh, First Amendment uh, incitement for you know political speech, and he didn't actually say you know go walk in there and you know break down the walls and you know go kill people. He he didn't say anything like that. So it's that's really really hard to win on First Amendment grounds. I would be shocked if they even tried it. Um, but he's got other things like you know potentially tax fraud. Um, uh, potentially ob- obstruction of justice from earlier things. And I think just he's sort of uh, angered the establishment in a way that, with you know, there's always prosecutorial discretion. I think he's increased the possibility that he'll be he'll be got for something. Um, so, yeah, I I, um, I thought Trump would be around forever. The, you know, the social media is just so huge. And it's not just Twitter. It's the fact that it came in such a way where like, you know, Instagram and Pinterest and, you know, everything else in the world just banned him. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't see how somebody maintains his sort of, you know, his place in American culture with that. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's not the youngest guy. Um, so let me ask you about the Democrats. Um, you know, in conservative circles, I know there is, uh, there's an argument, there's a debate. Uh, and when I mean conservative circles, you know, I'm on private signal groups and stuff like that. And there's arguments about whether Biden will usher in kind of a return to normalcy or uh, a kind of, I mean, it's an exaggeration to call it a woke terror, but basically the cultural uh, war uh, that the woke have been waging against uh, cultural conservatives, social conservatives on most issues, uh, not all, um, but on most issues. Uh and will it accelerate? Will it intensify? Like, what is your judgment? Because obviously Biden's profile is a moderate Democrat, but personnel's policy and the people that work for Biden um, are probably 
way to his left culturally. Yeah, I yeah, that's right. I mean, I wonder what people sort of mean with uh, by a woke reign of terror. I mean, they're going to come down hard on QAnon, Proud Boys. Look, I mean, when you when you threaten when you make Congress fear for their lives and you embarrass the government in that way, there's going to be there's going to be repercussions. Uh, but I think people sort of see this as a sort of a more long term, um, you know, a more long term thing. I mean, I think I'm not as alarmist as a lot of people. I mean, what what levers does the federal government have? Well, they have you know civil rights law, disparate impact. Um, you know, I you know I think that. Yeah, I, I think that the you know if you look at the great uh, sort of purges from social media, uh, they've usually come in waves, and it's it's not like a gradual. Uh, um, you know, it is in a way the culture is sort of a you know a gradual um, uh, turning up of the temperature, but it's usually waves when something happens. So after Trump won the election, I think there was a big purge on social media. After Charlottesville. I think it became more extreme. It became stuff like banks refusing to do business uh, with people, right? Not just banning their Twitter accounts. And then I think it sort of leveled off for a while. I did not feel like the censorship was, you know, from the top down. I mean, there was a uh, there, there's stuff going on with the culture and stuff that the government doesn't directly control. Uh, but I thought there was a loving leveling off until the um, Capitol Hill, um, until the storming of Capitol Hill. Um, so look, Biden's going to, I mean, Biden's going to come on, come into office. They're probably, they might, you know, reinstate the title nine, um, you know, the, the kangaroo courts for men accused of sexual assault in college campuses, or maybe if Ossoff is reading Colette, maybe, maybe he exerts an influence on Biden and they don't. Um, and, uh, especially on the race stuff, I think we're going to see more, uh, sort of, um, we're going to see uh, more liberal use of civil rights law, disparate impact, you know, taking businesses to court for being uh, discriminatory and, and more sort of uh, uh, less o- cases where it's you know less obvious that that's actually uh, what's going on. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, beyond that, yeah, I think I think I'm I think I'm on the side of more normal. I, I, don't, I don't see, you know, I don't see anything that's going to be too radical of a break from the past. Well, I mean, you, sir, are the opposite of if it bleeds, it leads, because, uh, you know, I'm proposing these scenarios and uh, you're just saying, ah, it's going to be it's going to be back to normal. Right. Well, there was this incredible New York Times article the other uh, the other day where they talked about Sean Hannity's show. And then in the uh, the headline was something like, you know, Fox News prepares for a post Trump world. And it was saying Hannity's show Friday night was about the Clintons, the Obamas. Uh, uh, Madonna and um, uh, Kathy Griffin, right? They said it, could, and they had this funny line: "It could have been a rerun from 2014, right?" And then uh, they handed it, it was also online, and he was tweeting, you know, says like, "Why am I paying attention to this stupid person, Hannity? Because he's like important, and he's more important than most of the people your your listeners listen to, um, in, as far as guiding our politics." And there was another we talked about: "Oh, another caravan is coming, um, you know, due to the Biden administration. It's just a rerun, right? It's it's an eternal loop. They're calling, you know, it it seems exciting on its surface." But it's it, you look at it, and it's sort of just like the same outrages and the same debates over and over again. What's Biden going to do? He's probably going to try to raise taxes, right? Um, he's probably going to try to uh, get more stimulus funding. Uh, he's going to probably try to inc- uh, incrementally increase um, uh, healthcare, uh, increase healthcare coverage. Uh, he's probably going to do stuff on immigration. This was this was the Obama admi- uh, this was the Obama um, sort of uh, um, 
agenda, but you know, just a little more left than it was. When you, even if you look at like the woke demands, um, like when when they're protesting, you know, their colleges and demanding the president step down, and you look at their actual demands, it's like hire more diversity counselors, have more training for staff. It's like this is the least ambitious revolutionary movement in human <laughs> in human history, right? And so on the left, you you know, you have these sort of symbolic concerns. On the right, you have these you know symbol you know these symbolic concerns too, and you know the left is sort of, the right is sort of reacting to the left the left is actually moving things forward where it was gay marriage you know 10 15 years ago and now it's whether we accept trans women into uh into women's sports um and then republicans are sort of reacting every step of the way they don't they don't talk about gay marriage anymore they you know they're afraid they would be afraid to they would be afraid to but then they talk about women's sports right um but it, it's, it's not, none of these things are gonna break society or cause blood in the streets or civil war and i've actually i mean i love the entertainment value of it i guess i'm you know i shouldn't look i shouldn't look down on uh those people i talked about earlier who just sort of like the sort of reality show aspect of it because i sort of like that too and you could tell from my twitter account that i, I get a kick out of it but I, I'm trying to not pay so much attention to it. Trump made it hard after, you know, in Capitol Hill, there's just so many videos and so much, you know, so many takes on Twitter. But I would like to pay less attention to the daily, you know, everyday politics of this stuff and sort of pay attention to more important things like the general trajectory of American society, uh, the rise in China, uh, what's happening to family, what's happening to the culture more generally. You know, I, I, I just don't think the, I think the day-to-day politics is sort of a distraction. Well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go and close out. Um, except I want to say that I have been doing something um, while you've been talking. I have been paging down through John Ossoff's um, <laughs> who he follows, and I have yeah. been looking at overlaps, and he does follow about a thousand people, so it's yeah. beautiful. Right. So I'm, going, I'm I'm gonna tell the listener about Ossoff here. We don't he want to follow. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, maybe, I mean, I, you know, depends on, I mean, I do know some prominent people, including, uh, well, I'm not going to say who, who subscribes because I don't want to convict the innocent, but, uh, <laughs> um, Wes Yang. Right. Right. Yeah. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Camille Foster. Okay. I don't know Camille Foster. I know. I know. The wow. other He's yeah. Matt Taibbi. Okay. David Shore. Okay. Coleman. Yeah. Zaid Jalani. Okay. Yeah. My one of my followers. Yeah. I mean Zaid's been on, on my podcast, uh, one of my podcasts before. We're 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 buds. But uh um Boomy Leaks, who is kind of an edgy centrist um account that I do follow and have followed for many years. And Boomy wow. Leaks consistently gets banned for being satirical and has had to kind of tread that line. But basically, they're definitely IDW adjacent. Um, and so, uh, Lee Fong? Yeah, yeah, Lee Fong, that's the leftist who's uh, intercept, who's also tough on crime and sometimes... And he was... Can- he, there was a cancel... He was a, he's a, he was, there was a cancellation attempt on him. He goes by um, he, him, by the way. I'm looking at his account too now. He, him is a... You know, is a, that's that's a sort of an interesting spin given the, given the followers. Yeah, I mean, I so Lee, Lee, and I follow each other actually. Um, so um, we've DM. No, not Lee. Ossoff is he him? I don't know about. Oh, okay, but, but he's a politician. He has to now. No, no, I, I did a data analysis in the Democratic primary, and uh, like the, the, it was like half and half actually. Um, it was the, the ones, and actually, I you know I made a joke that the ones were doing better, the ones who didn't do he him because it was uh it was uh Biden and Sanders were the non woke. 
and then Klobuchar, and then like the ones weren't doing so well was like Buttigieg, Harris, Warren. They all had their pronouns and they didn't do as well. So I had this like you know graph with like 10, 10 observations, which which I thought was funny. But yeah, that's a, that's that's awesome. That's actually pretty cool. Uh, there's, there's one more. There's one more. JD Vance. <laughs> okay. So, so I mean, these are people that are mutual in terms of like I follow. These are people that I follow, and so yeah. there could be other gems in there. Um, yeah. So anyone who is listening and wants to do, because I mean, BuzzFeed has done stories. No, I, I, of, I sort of don't like what we're doing. We're, we are, we are maybe setting this guy up for some kind of cancellation or renouncing of, of, of based on this. I, I don't know. No, but no, but he's got, he's, he's going to be in the Senate for six years. So we, we're just breaking a story that's going to get broken anyway, you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean, whatever. I don't think it's a story that's getting broken. Maybe it's, maybe it's okay. Um, yeah. That he is that he. I mean, IDW needs representation too. I mean, it's it's fat. The, the split, yeah, the split. These people who some see Trump as the uh, the answer to wokeness, and some see him as just sort of you know this independent cancer to wokeness, or sort of feeding into wokeness. You know that that split is fascinating, and and sort of you know the IDW. It's influence is also interesting because i think if you look at mutuals and sort of twitter networks i haven't seen the actual analysis but just guessing from what i've seen on twitter i think there's more overlap between uh right-wing people and the idw than there is with the idw and the left and if you look at colette's comment section it could be it could be federalist you know it could be it could be something yeah. like that often um yes but then if you look at the politician level i i i can imagine um you know, like these 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 Republican you know senators or these Republican congressmen like Paul Gosar, I I can't imagine them you know reading Colette. I can imagine the the moderate Democrats more too. So sort of a, you know their 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 base. You know, there's the there's a there is there is a market for and this is a little bit what CSBI is doing. There's a market for smarter conservatism. You know, I, I'm sorry, but a lot of the a lot of the stuff out there and Trump has unfortunately exacerbated this trend is just not very smart. Right. And, you know, you, you would hope that the people, you know, these smarter people like Coleman, like Wesley Yang are influencing actual politicians. It's happening among Republicans, you know, and conservative people generally. But at the top levels, it's sort of just this intellectual wasteland. It's sort of these these con artists and these barking talk radio hosts and these, you know, Fox News anchors. And it's, it's just terrible. So, you know, the, the, if, you know, if you if you dislike wokeness and, you know, you're tempted to go in the Trumpist direction, but you also, you know, you don't like the left. You know, I'd encourage thinking about how you're thinking intelligently about sort of where the opportunity lies and who you can realistically influence. Yeah, yeah. Um, last last question. Um, so you're talking about intelligent conservatives. Uh, do you have an opinion on Ben Shapiro? <laughs> um, not particularly. No, I mean he's. Okay. he's I mean, I, I, he's a typical conservative in in his views, right? I I don't think I have anything to say that would that would surprise people. Okay, okay. Um, you know, I was just asking because you know my hypothesis is he's obviously extremely bright, but yeah. he knows what he has to do and be, and the way he has to speak to have a lucrative career. Yeah, I mean Shapiro. Yeah, is unquestionably a smart guy. I think he went to Harvard. Did he go to Harvard Law School? Or Harvard undergrad, um, yeah, so. I, I, yeah, maybe UCLA undergrad and Harvard Law. It was one of it was something, some combination like that. Yeah, and that and and that's uh, pretty smart. I, I, yeah, and I, I don't think he's just a, um, you know, some people. Th I don't think he's just like a pure grifter, like a lot of these people are. Uh, either he seems to believe what he says. He's you know a religious guy. He's got I think a wife, and I think he's got a good number of children. Um, 
Yeah, I really have nothing to say about Ben Shapiro. <laughs> I really, I can't get excited one way or the other. Yeah, he's just sort of there. He's a, he's a typical conservative. Um, I think he's gone. I think he's gone in the. Um, I, well, I, I mean, I'll say we talked about the IDW and sort of these intersections between different uh, uh, political factions. I think it's interesting that he was friends with Sam Harris, um, and he was sort of sort of seen in this club. I think I think it's you know whatever you think of Shapiro, it's we need more of that. We need sort of this uh, cross you know cross party talking and. Uh, Glenn Beck is actually going to be on Eric Weinstein. I saw on Twitter today, and that'll be that'll be interesting. I think Glenn Beck, you know, is a, is a little bit more on the you know in the clown is sort of more in the in the clown camp um, as far as you know faction. I, I I think he was literally a part time rodeo clown at some point. Let's see. <laughs> Yeah, so he's a little, you know, he's a little bit of a clown. Actually, you know, he's not completely without integrity because he went against Trump and in 2016, and that was not, a, I don't, I can't imagine that was a good business decision. Now he eventually came around to Trump and started to love him, but the fact that it took him like five years of suffering, his business suffering, and you know, to, to actually sell out is probably, <laughs> he probably, you know, had more sort of integrity there than uh, than most people did. So you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think a lot of these people, you know, believe. Um, almost everybody believes to a certain extent, um, you know, what they, what they tell themselves and they, when they make compromises in the short term, they think it's towards some greater good, right? They, they convince themselves there's going to be some kind of woke grain of terror. So Trump is the only thing, you know, holding it back. I, you know, I don't buy that, but even with, if you, if you see Trump as a horrible person, you could still, you know, you could see how somebody would justify uh, supporting him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a, we live in interesting times. Um, you are predicting a little bit more boredom, and that, that's probably a good thing. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had you for a while. Um, I will let you go, and um, everyone should check out your new nonprofit. Um, I will put the links and everything like that. Um, there's really good stuff there already, and uh, maybe we'll we'll follow up at some point, Richard. And, uh, you know, Richard, if there is a civil war that breaks, breaks out, uh, I am going to get you on for a follow-up <laughs> you could have peter church to just you can have just peter church and laughing at the background and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, i'll put a uh, i'll put a crayon drawing uh that shows an exponential increase in violence um as a cover for the podcast peter church and here you fool here is your that's what i've been trying to tell you <laughs> <laughs> okay take it easy man all right thanks for Zoom. This podcast for kids.